second episode. In honor of February's most notable holiday, we're taking a look at love and relationships in the bartending and spirits industry. What does it take to have a fruitful relationship when you're dealing with a hectic bartending schedule? What about when you're working for a brand and you find yourself on the road much of the time? We talked with a few industry members to get their take as well as with a relationship counselor for professional advice. We also looked at ways to show yourself love and kindness, whether that's treating yourself to a shopping spree, improved healthy habits, or the joy that comes from helping others. And last but not least, we talked with a clinical sexologist to investigate whether there's any truth in the age-old legend of love potions, and how bartenders might apply the concept today. We began our look at love by talking to Regina Mandel and Matt McFerrin an engaged couple who bartend and own a bar, respectively, in Athens, Georgia. My name is Matt McFerrin. I'm the owner of The Old Pal in Athens, Georgia. I'm Regina Mandel, and I bartend currently at The National in Athens, Georgia. Uh, Well, naturally, we met behind a bar. (laughs) Yes, in Philadelphia, uh, at a bar called Johnny Brenda's that was newly opened. Um, I was on their very original opening staff and Matt came in like what? Eight months after, I believe. Eight months later? We pretty much worked every Thursday night together for about four years straight. (laughs) And did did you start off just pretending to be workers or how quickly? We always were just co-workers oh. there. Yeah, yeah. It was strictly, for strictly, strictly platonic, professional. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, it wasn't until after I left Philadelphia um, and moved to New Orleans that uh, I guess it became something more than just a, a working <laughs> relationship. <laughs> yes, we always kept in touch after that. Kept in touch, uh, obviously I made my way back to Athens. After several failed attempts of trying to get her to visit me in New Orleans, uh, she reached out to me to find out if I happened to be heading back down that way anytime soon. Because he visited there often, even after not living there anymore. And sure enough, I was actually going down to Mardi Gras uh, in about a month or two. It was um, like a month. It was really, it was really close, and I was like, "Oh, that's not what I was thinking." I was thinking like later this year, but I somehow got it together and was like, "You know what? Actually, I I'm gonna meet you down there." So I finally got to go to New Orleans, and we met up down there. And Here we are. That was yeah. That was kind of the end of that, <laughs> or the beginning of this, <laughs> however you want to <laughs> phrase it. How, if at all, has the love of bartending influenced your relationship? I've always felt, just from knowing people throughout my life and working with them or coming to work with them, that's when you get to know somebody the best. That's when you really know somebody well, if they, you, when you understand their work ethic. Um, and 
I've always really appreciated that in Matt. He was always, like, really a pleasure to work with. I don't know. I think if we were behind a bar anywhere at this point, I'd still feel that way. Just because of... I mean, we were doing that for four years. That's a long time. Every week. <laughs> um, I think it would be the same. Don't you agree? <laughs> no? <laughs> the only answer to that is, of course. <laughs> So how does the fact that both of you bartend and have bartended for a long time impact being able to understand each other's stressors and your hours and... In terms of like stressors, I think it's just something that it's good that we both understand and are able to relate and we can complain about the same things and find company in that instead of Maybe if I was talking to somebody that wasn't familiar with what I was getting at, they might find it annoying, but I don't know. It's, we can commiserate on that. Um, and in terms of scheduling, um, I don't know. It, it's, it's something that I guess for us isn't such an issue, and we always definitely try to make at least one day of the week, which is usually Sundays, our day to not be at any bars unless we're there to enjoy a cocktail or brunch or something. Um, but Sunday is our day to like hang out with one another. What is your relationship advice to fellow bar owners and bartenders? Find someone that is understanding and sensitive of, you know, what you deal with, night in, night out, um, whether that just be uh, the long hours or just the stress of having to always kind of be on when you're behind the bar or, you know, in front of the, uh, the general public. I think it's... Uh nice and important to have like a designated time to spend with one another I think I think that that's important in any relationship but with you know possible weird scheduling that comes with working in the restaurant and bar industry I think that you might need to make more of an effort because it's not a cut and dry Monday through Friday situation hoping with a bartender's schedule is one thing but how do brand ambassadors who face equal, if not more significant challenges to work-life balance, maintain healthy relationships? David Allen, the manager of trade education and mixology for Patron, told us how he and his husband, Joe, make it work. I think it's hugely challenging for people in these jobs to maintain a healthy home life and um, keep a relationship going. It certainly helped for us that we'd already been together for a long time uh, when I took this job. And, um, you know, so we have a lot of, like, understanding and, and stability there. But, no, that, that part's not easy. It's, uh, sometimes, I just re sometimes I will be in a fabulous, beautiful place and just wish I was uh, home, you know, at home in Austin with, with my people, you know. You know, when I first started, I was, I was just very constantly on the road. Um, late, nowadays, as I write my schedule, I, I, um, deliberately plan time to be home. I will come home after an event or catch the early flight, you know, if that's an option, 
just because, like, it's kind of like uh, instead of rounding up and being gone, you know, stretching out a trip as long as possible, I'm just sort of rounding down just to get back home, you know? Because if I didn't and if I was undisciplined about it, I could literally just be – I could never have to come home. The the demands of our of, of, of on our department here um, are so high that if I said yes to all of the invitations, like, yeah, I, would, I could just be gone constantly, but it's not – uh, that's not really sustainable. So I deliberately schedule time to be home. Uh, I'm trying to make the most of my home time. Like I, I make, I make sure to be uh, focused and attentive at home and turn my phone off and put my laptop away when we're doing stuff, you know, and not be just sort of like uh, half, half aware or half, half attentive. So I schedule home time. I make sure my home time counts or something. And then the other thing, thing that's sort of a fringe benefit of this job is that you travel so much you get a lot of transportation points so I've, I've all, where it makes sense I've tried to make Joe come along with me uh, or meet me somewhere you know after I'm done for example with an event or whatever you know we're lucky in that having our spouse or partner come along with us is way more fun than going along with them if they work in a different business you know uh, like Joe and I used to, we've been going to Tales of the Cocktail now for over 10 years. I think this summer will be our 11th Tales. Whereas I never once went to his convention because it would be boring and I would, I wouldn't be happy. Um, uh, so in as much as it is fun to drag them along, uh, you can't just expect your spouse or partner to come sit at the bar as, you know, that's still boring when it's not your job. Uh, and it's not good for the relationship and it's not, it's not really good for your job, uh, just to have your significant other, like, you know, posted up there all the time, you know, so you have to, you got to make an effort to carve out time, uh, outside of your bartender, you know, social friend world. But sometimes you got to get away from these people. <laughs> you know what I mean? Sometimes it's like, I don't want to hang out with any more bartenders right now. Uh, you got to make time to see your family, family, uh, like your biological family, uh, if you're fortunate enough, enough to get along with them. Um, and you got to make time for, for your significant other that has nothing. You got to make carve out time that has absolutely nothing to do with um, visiting your bartender friends. You have to be very deliberate and focused on making sure you touch base regularly. And if you travel a lot, making sure you keep it to, to as much of a minimum as you can. And while first-hand advice is certainly invaluable, we also thought a professional insight might help anyone struggling to balance a career with their relationships. Licensed counselor Jen Serafin weighs in. My name is Jen Serafin. I am a therapist at Heartwork Counseling Center, which is in Inman Park. With bartenders who have to be on mm -hmm. all the time to serve people, how then can they dig deeper to also serve their significant other when they might feel drained. I mean, I think this is something that's true for all couples and maybe it's a particular issue for somebody like a bartender or, or anybody maybe in like a sort of customer facing sort of position. You know, we need to have some time or space to sort of take care of ourselves, to be, to sort of pull ourselves back in. Um, some, some, whether it's a literal space like our homes or, you know, imaginary space, like we can go on an imaginary vacation or something, um, or even time, like your commute time between work and home, that you can sort of put some of that stuff aside, get yourself back so that you're not, you know, this person that you are at work. 
Um, and obviously, you know, some days you're not going to be able to have much left to give to your partner. But, you know, doing some of those things, like being really intentional about taking time and space that you need to recharge and, and sort of become yourself again can help a lot when then sort of turning around and going back to your partner or family as opposed to, you know, I'm on and I'm doing my thing. I work a lot with John Gottman's research, John and Julie Gottman. They've done a ton of really great research on couples and the things that they do or don't do to make things work. Some of their recommendations include having a really good sort of knowledge of your partner. So that includes you know, knowing who their most favorite or most hated co-workers are, right? Um, the basic things about their life that you necessarily aren't privy to in their day, but, you know, knowing what their toothpaste they like and paying attention to what shirts they love and knowing what it's like when they talk to their mom, you know? So, like, that you have a really good sort of internal experience of what your partner is doing. Um, so that's one of their recommendations. Another one is is turning toward your partner. So, you know, we all have choices in life when we can say, I don't know, I get a job offer and I have to think about like, maybe this is a great job offer for me, but how does it affect my partner? Or alternatively, just even on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, I come home from work and my partner says, oh, hey, how's it going? Let's chat. Um, and I'm really exhausted. I can, you know, stomp away um, and not be particularly nice or interactive. Or I can choose even to say, um, hey, I just had a rough day. I need 20 minutes. I'm going to, you know, go lie down for a little bit, do whatever. Can we catch up again in a half hour? Um, and so you, you sort of make that choice to acknowledge them and acknowledge what they need while also sort of paying attention to what you need. Um, so the Gottmans call that turning toward, you know, just like being really conscious of, of how your decisions and how your experience affects the relationship and trying to keep that together. If people are dealing with complicated schedules, mm -hmm. then what is your advice I really recommend people, especially if they have complicated stuff like that going on, like like a bartender schedule, really prioritize taking whatever time they can together. And, you know, maybe that really means something like half hour a week or, you know, like one night a week or something that they can, or morning, I guess, in this case, maybe, um, that they can actually be together and do something together. But having some time together um, can really, really help. And, it, you know, and especially if you are in difficult circumstances where, you know, maybe one of you is gone a lot or you're sort of crossing in the night, um, that can get more challenging, but you can also stay connected other ways, right? Like, you know, sometimes we can text each other throughout the day um, or things like that to sort of stay involved in each other's lives. The Gottmans talk about um, what they call perpetual problems, you know, like, my partner and I are never actually going to agree on how much to see our families, right? Like we just disagree about this fundamentally or whatever, whatever the thing is. Um, and so knowing that we're not trying to argue in order to like solve the problem, we then instead argue to find a solution that's workable to both people. Um, and so I guess that's sort of probably where I would start with this 
you know, we have this problem. We have opposite schedules. I can't do anything about it. You can't do anything about it unless we were to, you know, change jobs or do something sort of dramatic like that. But, you know, given that this is sort of the way things are, we have to try to come up with a thing that works for both people more or less. Um, And so, you know, perpetual problems, like we don't try to solve them. We try to make them work. Um, And it's a thing that we then expect to negotiate over consistently over the course of the relationship. You know, so we do maybe do a whole bunch of negotiating up front and have a whole bunch of arguments. And then we sort of get into like a, okay, like this is more or less working. Um, And then somebody is like, this isn't working for our mini anymore. And so we have to renegotiate or something changes. You know, we move in together. We have a child together. We, who knows what, right? Any of those sorts of things. And so we have to renegotiate how we handle the problem. Um, So, yeah, I guess I would just tell people to sort of expect that that kind of thing is going to be a consistent negotiation. It's not going to be a thing that you solve, um, and to sort of start off with that as their premise, because I think it makes it sometimes easier and less like uh, our expectations then are not that we have to like fix this. Our expectations are that we have to live with it and make it work for us, uh, which is, I think, a really important distinction. Whether you're in a relationship or not, it's still of the utmost importance to practice self-care. This can take many forms. But for those who are, for whatever reason, down on their luck, we suggest treating yourself to a fashion makeover. Rachel Barnes was a bartender for 10 years before launching a career as a personal stylist. She told us what a new look can do to inspire a new attitude. If a client came to you and they were like, Rachel, I have had the worst month, year, week, whatever of my life, can you please just cheer me up? Where would you start? But what I find is a lot of my clients don't want a lot of clothes and the majority of the time I'm having to purge from their closet and get clothes out of there and then not add very many to their already existing wardrobe but I think what would be really nice especially for those clients that don't want a lot of clothing is to find just the the softest of cashmere kind of long sweaters that are perfect for wearing around the house, that kind of feel like a comforting hug every time you wear it, and and something that they will always want to put on anytime they're home. They'll even want to throw it on when they go off to the grocery store. They won't want to take it off. And maybe some nice slippers. I feel like, especially when all you're focusing on is yourself, I am a huge proponent for dressing for yourself and that when you do wear something that makes you feel good and looks good on you it doesn't matter what it is everyone will see that and they'll they'll read that energy on you and they'll they'll love it and that being said I try not to push people into sweatpants and sweatshirts even if it feels good on them Um, because there really is something to be said about dressing up and and feeling good and, and how you look That being said, if I'm alone and I'm wanting to make myself happy, cashmere, sweatpants, silk pajamas, anything like that, probably the way to go. How might giving somebody a new wardrobe just change their outlook? You know, I think it really surprises people when they 
get done with a session where we've purged their closet or I put together a handful of outfits that they had in their closet but didn't even know that they could put together or even after I found them the perfect piece, that perfect blazer that fits just right or the pants that are actually long enough or actually short enough, I think it surprises people how amazing it makes them feel and how confident and how much more achievable the day feels when you look pretty much perfect because of what you're wearing. It really is life-changing how much better you can feel when you're put together, when your outfit is put together, when it fits just right, when it's perfect and it's not hard to do. And it doesn't take a lot of money necessarily. Alterations on things you already have, buying one or two pieces to fit in with what you've got. And, and so for the chance for a person to kind of get a whole new wardrobe just by purging a few items from their closet and adding a couple things in, it really is a gift. And I think that the majority of my clients don't even realize how big of a gift it is to themselves until they do it. Maybe what you're looking for isn't a new wardrobe, but new healthy habits. Holistic health coach and former bartender Michelle Lewis tells us the value of caring for yourself, mind, body, and spirit. My name is Michelle Lewis. I'm a health coach. I also call myself a holistic lifestyle coach because um, being healthy is a lifestyle. It's um, not just about nutrition. It's also about your mindset. So I help people shift their mindset into a healthy lifestyle. So I think that bartenders just need to be, or anyone really in the liquor industry altogether, um, just need to be mindful of what they add into their life um, as far as goal setting, make it small, and then also be forgiving. Um, this is key, I think, because we beat ourselves up. I think bartenders or people in this industry, um, they have a tendency to do that. <laughs> I think some of that has to do with, you know, there's competitions. There's always um, the, the need to prove that you are doing something innovative and creative within the industry to make a name for yourself. It can be really hard to do that. And you're constantly thinking of what other people are, you know, I guess, critiquing your cocktails and your programs that you're setting forth. So being forgiving to yourself, being kinder to yourself, I think self-care is a, a big one too. Um, and that comes along with um, being forgiving to yourself, but also just taking care of yourself, getting that, getting that 30 minutes a day, if you can squeeze, or even 20 minutes a day of where you do something that is purely just for you, whether it's taking a hot bath, it's, you know, some people experience that through exercising. Um, I like to just go outside and lay out in the sun for 30 minutes to get my vitamin D. So little things like that to make your yourself a little bit happier, to know that you're putting and you're investing a little bit of time in yourself. I think bartenders need to uh, do that as well, is little things that make them feel good so that the rest of their day is just that much better. Bartenders make careers of tending to the needs of other people. It's the fundamental aspect of any role in the hospitality industry. But if you're burned out on helping people and looking to reinvigorate your capacity to care, 
Nothing works like volunteering. Harriet Ribbons, volunteer coordinator at No Kill Animal Shelter Paws ATL, tells us why. In the background, you'll hear our friend Lilo, a four-year-old mutt, enjoying a chew toy. So I'm Harriet, I'm a volunteer coordinator here at Paws Atlanta, um, so I run anything that's volunteer orientated. Um, I've been here about four months now. Um, I've been a volunteer here for six years. Um, and so I started volunteering and then I got offered the volunteer coordinator position. It's, it's, we have a great network of people that come and volunteer with us. Um, really, we try and open it up to everybody. Um, if you aren't the type of person who wants to hang out with the dogs and cats, you can come and help us with admin work. If you're more of an events person, you can come and help us with our events. Um, or if you just want to hang out with the babies, we absolutely love that too. Um, our volunteers are great, they come from different walks of life, so we absolutely welcome everybody. And it's been really wonderful having the support from the community and also, you know, Atlanta in general. I think, honestly, especially with animals and in the animal environment, being around them and just seeing them on a day-to-day -day basis, and when you come in, and you spend all this time with them, and you walk them, and you love on them. It just kind of brings like a whole lot of warmth to your heart. And I think that by volunteering, as I said, in any aspect, you're just really helping get the animals that don't necessarily have a place just yet. You are really helping them out no matter what you do. So at Paws, we really have a great group of volunteers. Um, you kind of see a lot of the same people on a daily basis. So you develop friendships. You um, develop kind of a community at the shelter itself. So not only are you coming out and you're hanging out with the dogs and cats and cuddling them and loving on them, but you also have friends who are out here at the same time and you have groups that you can work with. Um, to help the dogs and the cats and also you know it's it's great for personal personal growth you meet different people from different walks of life that you wouldn't usually meet it's definitely worth if you have an hour 30 minutes um, 10 minutes even just checking out the local community and seeing who has volunteer opportunities um, because a lot of people just really need that extra help um, they don't require a time commitment they don't require you to commit to 8 billion years with them. They really just want people who are passionate about what they do and um, also that you're passionate about helping them. People have been after the elusive root of love for thousands of years. Ancient cultures have written legends of love potions for just as long. Where did this idea come from? And how might bartenders apply these principles today? Dr. Steve McGew Clinical sexologist helps us separate fact from fiction. My name is uh, Steve McGue, or Dr. Steve McGue. Uh, I'm an associate professor of clinical sexology at the Institute for Advanced Study of Human Sexuality, and I also am the director of research and development at Women and Couples Wellness. Anytime they had language, uh, there were references to uh, love potions uh, and and love amulets, talismans, spells, etc. Uh, that usually is just the forerunner to what we call medicine today. I mean, they attempted to, to resolve problems and heal, you know, through things they didn't understand. But uh, the word aphrodisiac comes from the Greek term Aphrodite. Uh, there are other cultures, you know, that aren't based on Greek and Roman history in the writing, use different 
you know, terms for it, but even the, the ancient Chinese, the Taoist, had love uh, potions and love incantations and things of that nature. Uh, in India, they had a whole separate um, uh, science, if you want to call it, for that, that ranged from herbal treatments to, you know, what people hear about for Tantra or Karma Sutra, things of that nature, and, and a whole host of things in Ayurvedic medicine. But uh, as long as we've been around, uh, that's been something that people have had as a need, either for romantic love or for increasing sexual interest or potency, um, just for the the pleasure factor of it or for, for procreating. The biggest thing, I believe, uh, is what the person thinks it's going to do. And that's where I think a lot of the... Uh, things you hear throughout history, if, if everybody says, oh, this particular thing is an aphrodisiac, if you go into it believing it um, and are anxious about it and excited, you may basically psych yourself into it. I mean, in, in medicine and in research, they have to deal with the reality of the placebo effect, which actually is the power of the mind to do things. So that, I think, from a you know a bartender standpoint, is the most powerful thing you can work with uh if you had an array of drinks that had things that were believed to be or you know known to be pleasant and arrange them right i think you could come up with really good effects that's all for this episode of tales of the cocktail special thanks to our guests regina mandel matt mcferrin david allen Jen Serafin, Rachel Barnes, Michelle Lewis, Harriet Ribbons, Lilo, and Dr. Steve McGew. Thanks to our composer and sound engineer, Gresham Cash. I'm Jody Cash, and I can't wait to talk next time. Cheers, y'all.